Thank you, Dave, Pam. That song is not only appropriate for those who stood on the stage and led us in worship this morning, certainly is appropriate for me, let them see you as I speak, certainly is appropriate for all of us in the workplace, and we're going to talk about that this morning. There's a lot of information in your bulletin. You've talked about life groups this morning. You saw the video clip, an opportunity the last Sunday to sign up for one of those life groups out there in the lobby. Thursday night live, our 6th to 8th grade ministry starts this Thursday night upstreet in Wombaland next Sunday morning. Senior high ministry next Sunday night called C. A lot of things going on. You don't want to miss out on any of that. An incredible opportunity to help the next generation develop into the kind of godly individuals that we want them to be. But obviously, as a parent, we need your involvement in that to bring them and encourage them, support them in that. So if you can do that, we would really appreciate that. Governor Abbott of Texas, and obviously our president asks us as churches all across America today to join in praying for them, praying for that state, those in Texas and Louisiana. I can't, you can't help but every single day. I mean, I've wept every single day in the last three weeks, and every time you look at another picture and read another story, you're absolutely overwhelmed with the devastation of what's gone on in that area of the country. And so we want you to pray for them, pray for first responders, pray for families, those who've been involved, whose lives will, in many cases, never be the same again, but in some cases, certainly not for a long time to come. So would you join me in prayer? Father, it's hard to know what to say sometimes. When we see so much devastation and so many circumstances that are almost overwhelming, overbearing, I pray, O oh God, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the cross, that your majesty and grace will abound in phenomenal ways. There have been so many devastating stories and so many powerful stories all intertwined in the midst of this tragedy. And so we plead with you in Jesus' name that you'll be with these families who have gone through such deep emotional trauma, whose lives have been turned upside down, who have no idea when they'll be able to return home, who have no idea what they'll return to when they do. And so I ask for every chaplain and everyone who's working with first responders and those who are trying to serve and National Guard and FEMA and the list is endless of people who are trying to do everything they can to help people through such devastating circumstances, through every church and civic center that has been opened to help them and encourage them. We lift them up to you. We ask for protection, for help, for encouragement, for strength. Trust that the resources will continue to flow and that you will do an amazing work in the midst of the tragedy. I thank you again for the privilege that we know that we have a God who does understand and does see us when we walk through deep waters, literally and figuratively. A God who now this nation is calling on. I pray that it's not just for the moment, or just for the tragedy, but it becomes the mantra of who we are and what we recognize that you are really our only hope. And so we plead with you in Jesus' name to work and protect and minister to people whose lives have changed so dramatically. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We've got a half a dozen Alliance churches in that particular area as well. Uh, a couple of them were flooded this week. Uh, many ethnic churches are in that Houston area, and they have now dried out and are becoming service centers for some of those that are trying to figure out where do we go next. So I know they would appreciate your prayers on a regular basis. In your bulletin this morning are ways to give the two most trusted organizations that I believe in are CAMA, which is the relief arm of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, 
which through our district superintendent is helping out in that area, and then Samaritan's Purse. And uh, so if you can give or want to give, I know a lot of people want to. I've been asked almost every time I swipe my credit card somewhere, do you want to give a dollar here or a dollar there? But if you would like to give, those are the two best that I know, the most trusted that I know that you can respond to. Craig Adams, who is a member of our church, has gone on a couple of occasions to other tragedies, Katrina and Sandy, and he's working on a trip together, actually, uh, with some other people to work with Samaritan's Purse at the end of September. And so when we find out that information, uh, he just told me that yesterday, we'd certainly get that to you if anybody would like to go or has the freedom to go. Uh, I know that uh, they would appreciate that, and, and certainly we'll get more work and more information out to you. If you have your sermon notes this morning, I'd love you to take them out. We're going to talk about life in the workplace. As we do, just a couple of real quick notes from last Sunday morning's uh, service. I made a mention last Sunday morning that 800 people are viewing our services online, and that uh, was a misinformation that I was given. There's a different way to look at Facebook views than what you would normally think, and that was my bad. So we don't have that many at all. We're not even sure exactly, but it is available for those who didn't get here or aren't here on a regular basis, you can certainly watch the services that way. But that was information that I was given that was wrong, and I apologize for that. And then to this service only, at the very end of the services, I sat here, and I looked at the audience. I said to you, at least all of you have your act together, and that was inappropriate on my part to say that. So please forgive me, um, and I ask you to do that. How many of you work for a living? What do the rest of you do? I got to believe at some point or the other, all of us work for a living in some way or the other. For you who do not get a paycheck, you probably in some cases may work harder than those of us who do. Especially as a mom raising kids and the hours and the hours that are invested into that process. Most of us in this room work for someone. I asked you last Sunday and yesterday on phone tree to wear your work clothes to work today or to church today. And some of you did, some of you didn't. Some of you, this is what you normally wear when you go to work. Others of you don't want to wear that. Others of you don't want to advertise your organization. Others of you just don't want us to see where you're at anywhere along the way throughout the week. So I get that. But for those of you who did, I appreciate that. Gives us just a little bit of a better understanding of where you're at and work and what you do. And that's really our focus on this Labor Day weekend to talk about life in the workplace, making a difference where you are. Most of you know, hopefully all of you know what I do for a living. So it's kind of hard to know how do I dress today. I normally come to work every day in jeans and a polo shirt. I've got a wedding tomorrow afternoon on a Monday afternoon on Labor Day. I'm wearing a suit to that. In my first church, there was a number of guys who worked in strip mines and different hours, and they were also weekend farmers. So every once in a while, I'd get a call from uh, one of them, and, and Dave would say, hey, I've got some hay down. Would you go out and rake it? And then when it's raked up, would you tomorrow bale it? I've got to work. So I would change the normal clothes and go out and rake hay and bale hay. So you just never know, in my context, what I'm going to do. I have the privilege of being a chaplain for the Pennsylvania State Police. And so that's an honor that I enjoy. It's an opportunity that I have to minister to them and, and work them and pray alongside them. Next Tuesday, I'll be a, a part of the dedication ceremony of the new barracks there. Uh, so just so many different things. And, and, and I also wear this today just to remind you to pray for our first responders on a regular basis. Obviously, if you're familiar with the news at all, you know that many in law enforcement are 
really being the targets to some incredibly uh, foul things in a variety of different ways. And so I, just as a reminder to pray for them, uh, I heard yesterday that two first responders, maybe more than that, passed away in Houston just trying to help other people. So to me, it's just a reminder to continue to pray. How many of you work for somebody? There's a man, over, there's a woman over you. There's a, a boss over you. How many of you are the boss? What, only a few of you? How many of you like your boss? They're sitting beside you, aren't they? Yeah. How many of you like the people you work? <laughs> yeah, Bob's out here. How many of you like the people you, who work under you? And that's again, are they sitting here or are they not here? That's one thing or the other. Every one of us have somebody in our lives that's over us, even if the support of directors. Somebody asked me the other day, how many people do you work for? And I said, 1,200. <laughs> you just never know. Everybody's got an opportunity to find somebody in their life who has some suggestions to them or for them. All of us at some point or the other work for someone or have a relationship with someone in the workforce. And the opportunity this morning that we want to talk about is the influence you have in that context. Job market was a hot ticket in the presidential election. It's one of the things that everybody kept talking about. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And obviously a lot of things have changed in that market. The market is now taking off again. More job opportunities are out there. Some jobs are more difficult than others. Some more dangerous. Some more satisfying. In your sermon notes this morning, statistics tell us, how many people do you think are satisfied with their jobs? What did you say? 45% are satisfied with their jobs. Only 23% feel passionate about their jobs. Now, all who work here do, but I'm sure in some cases, only one out of five. 21% are eager to change. 40% say there's a possibility that they will seek other employment elsewhere within the next year. Now, if you've got a lot of employees, that's one thing you want to say, okay, seriously? 40% are saying they're going to consider seeking employment somewhere else within the next year. Scripture has a lot to say about work. It's one of those rare topics that a lot of Scripture speaks to. Colossians 3, I have them all in your sermon notes. Whatever you do. Whatever that is, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you're serving. Colossians 4, masters provide for your slaves what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I love the message version every once in a while. And this is what it says in Ephesians 6. Servants respectfully obey your earthly masters. Always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't do it just to get by. Work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God would want you to do. And work with a smile on your face. Let me see him. <laughs> work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving you orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master regardless of whether you're slave or free. Masters, those of you who are employers, the boss, it's the same with you. No abuse, no threats. 
You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. That's a really powerful verse. Now, you've got to remember the context of everything Paul is writing to. He's writing into an environment that does have slaves and masters. I don't even want to get into that issue, and I certainly get the context of that in today's world. He's writing to people who are currently in that situation. And regardless of your circumstances, regardless of where you fit on the economic ladder, or the organizational chart, every single one of you comes under the authority of Almighty God. And he also reminds them all the way across, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave or free. We're equal in the eyes of God. So just understand that clearly is what he's saying. Slaves in First Peter, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. Not only the ones who are good and considerate, but also even those who are harsh. God ordained work. It's in the Ten Commandments. Six days you'll labor and do all your work. Seventh day, Sabbath rest, which is what we do today, what you're doing. Hopefully you set aside that day, put a hedge of protection about it, keep it holy, which is what he means. Make sure that nothing robs that from you so that you can be recharged and energized for the next six days, also that you can realign your relationship with Almighty God. We're not spending time on that part, the Sabbath rest, but it is critical to our physical and spiritual well-being, so don't deny that. What we're looking at is six days you labor. It's a part of the life process. Scripture speaks about being lazy. The one who is unwilling to work shouldn't eat. That speaks a lot to a variety of systems that we find ourselves in. Diligent hands will rule. Laziness ends the forced labor. A slugger's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. First Timothy, anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives, and especially for those of their own household, have denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You don't take care of your family? Look at what he says, worse than an unbeliever. So the assumption is unbelievers or believers know how to take their, care of their family. Some people live to work. Others work to live. Some work as it's something I get to do or have to do till Friday. God worked. Seventh day, God had finished his work. Seventh day, he rested from all his work. And he asked us in Genesis 2.15 to do the same. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So in your sermon notes, you don't have to work. You what? You get to work. You get to work. We get to do what the Creator did. Create. Some people are more creative than others, and I get that. But you and I get the opportunity to work, to use the gifts and the skills and the intelligence and the abilities that God has given us to serve humanity or company or organization, the Almighty God, whatever that may be. Even in the fall, God didn't curse work. He cursed the ground. God has given us in Genesis 1.28 the privilege of being creative stewards over his creation. And so we get the privilege of joining God in his creative process. We get to do what God has done, create. There's a, a note in your bullet, one of the things that I always refer back to in regards to leadership, whatever level of the leadership chart you're on, whether you are at the top or in the middle or beneath that. Uh, leadership author D. Hawk wrote an article suggesting there's a certain amount of time and energy that good quality leaders ought to spend in each of the leadership areas. In your sermon notes this morning, good leaders, those who really want to do their best, 
spend 50% of their time in self-leadership. 25% in leading up. We almost all have somebody over us. 20% leading laterally. We have the responsibility to lead our peers. And then 5% leading down. Leaders, most of the time, will spend the majority of the time with those who follow them. What she is saying is if you do leading up, leading ourselves, and leading those around us, they will naturally follow us. We've been in a series over the last few months. We've got three more Sundays for that, and then we're going to move to a whole other subject after Duffy Robbins is here at the end of the month, one of the best parenting gurus you'll ever hear from, on Old Testament characters and that Old Testament still speaks. When it comes to this context, the one that I knew automatically was going to come to my mind, one that we have talked about before, his name is Nehemiah. You find his story in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 1 and 2 is what I said to you yesterday in Phone Tree. You ought to read to help you prepare for that. But chapter 1 kind of lays the foundation for chapter 2. And because of the length of all of that, I can't read it. Israel, on a number of occasions, disobeyed God and paid the price. You've heard me say that before. There are always consequences to every decision and certainly consequences to disobedience. Right? You all know that. Every time Israel disobeyed, they suffered the consequences, in many cases, of being overtaken by another nation. This is, again, one of those times. Jerusalem, everyone's favorite city, the beautiful city, the beautiful city of Jerusalem, had been destroyed in that takeover. Nehemiah's family, others that are still there, comes to him while he's in captivity. He's done well. You'll hear about that in a moment. And he surfaced to a high level of authority or a high level of honesty and trust in this organization that is certainly foreign to him and doesn't understand his God. And he hears from some people who have gone back to Jerusalem or at least came from Jerusalem to let him know how it is. Now, again, it's hard for us to put that in context of his love and affinity for the city of Jerusalem. Whatever your country of origin may be, so many generations have passed. You, you may or may not have an affinity to that area or that place. Uh, maybe to your city, if you've always been here and had to leave and, and something happened, maybe you would understand that. And Certainly the people in Houston, are, and somebody sent me an incredible Beth Moore article this week. about She's from Houston and loves that area and, and how resilient they are. I got a God tube this morning of people in a shelter just singing and praising God. It was unbelievable. And, and so if you lose that, that you've always had, you've always been there, it's your city, your home, your area, and it's in this case, these last few weeks flooded away or in their case destroyed by another nation, it brings some genuine heartache. And so when Nehemiah hears What's happened to his home, his homestead, his city, that beloved city of Jerusalem. He spends the whole first chapter just lamenting before God. We'll talk about that next week in David's life. And then you get to chapter 2. So you have to read the whole thing to see the picture. And, and he recognizes that he has a position of respect by the leader of this foreign nation that has taken over them. And so he finishes chapter 1 by saying this in verse 11. Lord... Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering or keeping holy your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. You see, I was a cupbearer of the king. 
It was the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when I brought wine to him. I'd taken him wine and I'd given it to the king, but I'd never been sad in his presence. That's what he is saying. He's alluding to the fact that after hearing what he heard about his beloved city, he now continues to do his daily job. So the king asked me, verse 2, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? It can't be anything but sadness of heart. Nehemiah said, I was much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors buried are lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? <laughs> and then I prayed, he says. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in, Jerusalem, in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him said, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? If it, it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. He said, what do you want? So I said, I'm going to answer him. I said, also, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governor of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive? And then he goes to the next level. And may I have a letter of Asus, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me some timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I occupy. Because of the gracious hand of my God that was on me, the king said yes. He granted my request. Things you can't help but notice in this chapter. Now, put yourself in your work environment, whatever that may be. Whether you have a believing boss or an unbelievable boss. Whether you have a boss who loves Jesus. Whether you have a boss that intimidates you about Jesus. Whether you have a boss that encourages you or puts you down. Whatever your situation or circumstances are, put yourself in Nehemiah's position. He's a follower of God in an unbelieving world. He's a lover of God in a world that he doesn't even know knows God. He knows that anything he does to this king could cost him in a negative, anything he does negatively to this king could cost him his life. He knows that right up front. Yet look at what he does. Look at how he responds. Five, four or five things that you notice in this section of Scripture. One is obviously his prayer life. Even while asking, the king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Incredible model for us. My encouragement out of that to you, even to me, is pray every day before you go to work. Pray while you're at work. Pray for your boss. Pray for your employees. Pray for your clients. Pray for your projects. Pray for your presentations. Sometimes we have our devotions morning and evening, whenever that may be. And you are probably as diverse as anyone could imagine in a congregation this size where you get up in the morning, maybe spend some time with God, or maybe you do that at the end of the day, maybe at your lunch break, whenever that may be. I worked in New York. I stayed while I was going to college one summer and and uh, I worked at BSR putting record changers together. That's how old I am. How many of you even know what a record is? All right, half of you. And, and we had a break, and, and so I, that's what the best time. We started really early, and it was the summer. So I, I would have my devotions during work or during um, lunch break. 
Whatever it is for you, the encouragement that I love out of here and the thing that I want to remind you of is you and I have the opportunity every single day in the environment that God has placed us in to pray for our boss, whether you like him or not. To pray for our employees, whether you like them or not. To pray for your clients. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not assuming every one of you are. Many of you may be here just trying to see who we are. And most of you probably have made that decision for Christ. Hopefully, all of you have. But you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you've got people in your sphere of influence that every day walk in and out of your life who may or may not know Jesus. And you have the opportunity to, by your work ethic and by your attitude, that we'll talk about in a second, to let them see him. Which is why Dave and Pam sang that song this morning before this message. So, Lord, let them see you in me. I don't like this lady that works next to me in this company. I do not like my boss. Now, I do. All of you. I've got a district superintendent and a board of directors and an elder board here and a uh, president, John, and just a lot of other people. But for some of you, you may not. Or the client that comes in that you know is going to try to take advantage of you, pray for them. Pray for him. Pray for her. Pray for them. Your opportunity to influence is, in the second, your attitude. By showing respect, not demanding, if it pleases the king. As a believer, attitude is everything to your boss, to your coworkers, to your employees, to your clients. Our attitude, the love we have for Jesus that spills out everywhere we go, that just exudes from us, let it be seen in me. God, may they, by my attitude, see you in me. By the smile on my face, which is why I love the message version, by the way I treat them, by the way I give them the best product, Whatever it is, may my attitude, if it pleases the king, I love that phrase because I push it the other way. In his case, he's saying, may my boss, may, if it pleases my king. His work ethic, obviously in your notes this morning, his work ethic, he did a good job, not just enough to get by. If I have found favor in your eyes. When you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you're going to find that he did an incredible job in self-leadership, lateral leadership, those beside him leading his followers. We're going to explore more of that in David's life next week. I want to talk today about leading up. For those of us on our org chart, whatever that may be, that have people over us, in many cases that's a lot of us. How do we do that well? Every one of us are and certainly should be accountable to someone. So if you want to lead those over you, if you're even the boss, but you've got a board of directors over you, the first thing is do your job really, really well. Do your job really, really well. Don't worry about how others do their job. Do your job really well. Now, I know if you're an overseer of people, you are going to worry about how others do their job. But in most cases, I'm referring to peers. And what I find so often is that everybody seems to worry about, on a peer level, how they're doing their job. Or that you can do it better, or you would do it different, and you probably could and would. But in this case, do your job really, really well. Quit worrying about them or their job or their 
uh, issues at all. Do your job really, really well. Look in your sermon notes this morning. This came across my desk fascinatingly in preparation for the message. Five top reasons people are promoted. I give you the organization there in your sermon notes. Five reasons they're fired. Number one, they work hard. Number two, they're well-liked. Three, they demonstrate expertise. They show initiative. They solve problems. Five reasons they're fired, unreliable, do not get along. Chemistry to me is incredible. The fit in an organization. If you read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talks about the ones that were good, that really went to the next level to become great, had the right people in the right seats with the right attitude going in the same direction. Not getting along with others, demonstrating poor performance. Number five, four, I like not listening to the boss. And number five, what do you think number five is? I left it blank so you could guess. Doing what? Doing stupid things. Doing stupid things. You've heard me say before, I've talked to pastors every once in a while, I'll say, the devil must be after me. I'm really getting beat up. And I'll say to them, no, you just did something really stupid. Now you're paying the dumb tax. Fascinates me how... We, we just don't get it sometimes when we do some of the craziest things. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in the audience, and Coase was preaching on Samson. And Joe texted me later and said, my oldest boy was in the service on Sunday morning listening to the sermon. And I asked him, so what did you learn? He said, I learned that Pastor Denny is boss of the whole place. Because <laughs> Coase called me boss during the message. One time he referred to me, that, that's what his little boy got out of that. And I said, I love that young man. <laughs> demonstrate competency. Demonstrate excellence. Not perfection. But excellence, doing your best, not just enough to get by. I wish I could somehow paint the portrait of the situation this guy's in. God had called him back to Jerusalem. He felt that. He sensed that to rebuild the wall. He's a servant of a foreign king. He knows that he could receive capital punishment by displaying a bad attitude in front of the king. Not only is he going to ask for a leave of absence, he's going to ask for protection. And, oh, by the way, could you pay for my trip? Now, I'm just telling you, I probably wouldn't go into the boss on Tuesday. Most of you probably have tomorrow off on Labor Day. But I probably wouldn't go back to the boss on Tuesday and say, hey, I'm going to take a vacation. Could you pay for it? I probably won't work. But this guy's in an unbelievable position. He needs to manage up incredibly well. He needs to lead this foreign king to see the importance. This is the important part. He needs to lead this foreign king to see the importance of the calling of God on his life. Do you see the significance of that? Your attitude, my attitude, our work ethic should and can influence non-believers in a really powerful way. Wherever God's placed you, you may be in a totally Christian organization. You may be in a very secular organization. But your attitude and my attitude, the position that God has placed you in, could have a remarkable, incredibly powerful influence on the unbelieving people that you find yourself around, maybe even being your boss. You and I, every single day, by the attitude that we display, the smiles on our face, the joy in our heart, regardless of our circumstances, have an opportunity to really positively influence a totally unbelieving believing population I mean this there's, there's zero knowledge there's zero acknowledgement in this context 
that this guy knew about Israel, knew about Nehemiah, knew about Jerusalem. Obviously, he destroyed it, wiped it out, and all of that, but really had any desire to know God. And yet, here is a man who is on a low part of the organizational chart, who influences in such a positive way that he makes a huge difference in the life of a pagan king. You and I have the opportunity to do that every day of our lives by the environment that God has placed us in. If it pleases you, O king, verse 5, chapter 2, if I have found favor in your sight, please grant my request. You know what that means? If I have... If you think I've done my job, if I've earned your respect, if I've met or exceeded your expectations, would you be willing to help me out? Leading up is about a good attitude, humility, submission, and the credibility of a job well done. We get so frustrated with people and the demands sometimes, and yet I see in this context here where a man in a really tough environment lives it out, loves the next level up, and does it really well. One of the keys to any organization or any leader in your sermon notes is earning respect and treating people fairly. They may be on your team, they may be your clients, but both deserve to be treated fairly. If you're the owner of a business and you're living the high life off the backs of your employees and not treating them well, I'm saying you're most likely not living a biblical lifestyle. Is it okay for you to be blessed beyond measure? Absolutely. Absolutely, as long as those beneath you are being treated in a godly manner. Steve Jobs in his book came out right after he died, said one of his biggest frustrations when he was ousted in the 80s is a new board took over and much more interested in profit than product. And we find that in so many cases where they're not only interested in product, but less even interested in people. There was a fascinating story this week about the owner of Gallery Furniture in Houston, do you all see that story where he literally opened up two warehouses? He said, oh my goodness, i got people all around me. This is my city. This is my place. I've got people all around me who need a place to stay, and I have a warehouse full of beds. And so he combined the two, fed them, hundreds of them, for the whole weekend. And he said, and somebody asked him, why would you do that? He said, come on, people are way more important than profits. I thought, man, I'd buy from that guy in a heartbeat. You want to gain support of those in leadership over you, do your job really, really well. Not deceitfully or in a manipulative way. Know your boss's style. Know the best times and the best place. Your, my lifestyle with Christ is a 24-7 experience. When we come to faith in Christ, it affects every area of our lives. Christianity is not something we do or have on Sunday. It affects every day, every decision we make. Our relationship with Christ affects our values, our personality, our relationships, our marriage, our family, our vocabulary, as we've talked about a few weeks ago, and our workplace in your sermon notes. Not a list of do's and don'ts that is a lifestyle that we get to display every day of our lives. And God may have strategically placed you in that place to be an influence on those around you. Somewhere we've made the mistake of having people believe that it's more spiritual to be in full-time Christian work. And churches brag about how many pastors and missionaries came out of their church. And that's awesome. Do not misunderstand me. That's an incredible thing. The churches ought to be able to be just as thrilled about great Christian bankers and lawyers and doctors and nurses and mill workers and office workers and teachers and police officers and construction workers that came out of their church. 
who have a great attitude about their career and who believe that God has placed them in that respective career and wants to use them in incredible ways. If you're a Christian in the marketplace, you ought to be one of the best workers that environment has. You ought to work harder, be more pleasant, more honest than anyone else in the environment. And if you're a Christian boss, you ought to be the fairest, nicest, most enjoyable boss anybody has ever had. That's to me as well because as Ethan said, I'm the boss of this place. So it certainly has to be something that I need to evaluate as well. Tuesday, you go to work. Maybe some of you tomorrow, maybe many of you today. You don't have tomorrow off. I don't have tomorrow off. I'm doing a wedding. How are you going to look at it? When you put that, whatever that is, that attire on, and you walk out that door and you drive to that workplace, how are you going to look at it? What opportunities? You have been placed by God in very strategic ways to make a difference in the lives of the people around you that I will never on this planet get in contact with. Let them see him in you and I. I want to pray for you. How many going to work Tuesday? A lot of hands. God, you know where we work. You know where we live. You know the influence we have on those around us. And I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the cross, you'll bless all of my friends here in this audience this morning who have the opportunity to make a difference where they're at, where you've placed them, the environment that they're in. Some are really in difficult circumstances. They're one of those 40% that wish they could change. Some can and some can't. But I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you'll give them encouragement and strength as they face the challenges of every day providing for their family providing a great work environment, doing whatever's necessary to fulfill their calling before you in whatever place you have placed them. So bless them, use them. May you be seen in all of us as we serve you in the place that you've placed us in the labor market. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Labor Day tomorrow and a great work week. See you next Sunday morning. Talk about David. <laughs>